Captain's log, Stardate 8130.3. Starship Enterprise on training mission to Gamma Hydra. Section 14, coordinates 22, Mark 87, Mark 4. Approaching neutral zone. All systems normal and functioning. And that's how it began. Welcome back, everybody, to Hit or Miss Star Trek for another uh, movie mini review. I'm sure those words will be familiar if you are a fan of this film. And uh, you, you, if you are alive, breathing, and a Star Trek fan, you're probably a fan of this film. But as you can probably see on screen today, we are going to be doing a little mini review of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, the director's cut. Um, before I go any further, I am joined by regular co host D. Khan <laughs> or DK. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Yes, I chased him round the moons of Nibia, around the Antares Maelstrom, and round Perdition's flames until he agreed to jump on with me. So he's here <laughs> to, uh, to help us with that one. Uh, you know, he, he, he wasn't happy everyone, about it. And he keeps on hurting me. <laughs> I task you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, a very memorable film. The reason for this mini review, I should say, is because um, I did go to see this at the cinema. So, in much the same way as I did see the motion picture 4K restoration uh, at the cinema not long ago, um, I went last night and saw a couple of movies that just happened to be on there. So, even though I do own the director's cut on Blu ray and it's not a new print or anything and there's nothing being added. It was nice to see it on the big screen, and I thought, why not chuck in a review of both the film, the director's cut differences for anybody who isn't familiar, and, you know, just what the experience was like, I guess. So, uh, yeah, with that in mind, DK, before I get into uh, anything specific, did you have any big questions about me seeing this on the big screen? Because I know you have uh, seen the first six already. So, what did you have any questions for me quickly about that? I I just I saw the original theatrical cut when I, uh, when ah. I saw it on, on the cinema. So you've obviously already had an improvement on the version that I did. What was the uh, the print like? Not great, to be perfectly oh. honest. Um, I don't know if it was the print or if it was the projectionist, and I think it was the latter because I was describing it to Will because he was talking about um, our friend Will Templar, by the way, who you'll hear on the channel in various places because um, he's been obviously trying to get more and more into Star Trek, and he was asking me if it's worth a cinema trip to see Wrath of Khan, and I'm like, it really, I mean, I can't be objective, but I would say yes, but at the same time, I hope you have a better projectionist than mine, because for whatever reason, the image that they projected for us was just really dark, and I don't remember it being that way, and as I said to Will during our conversation, I know it's not supposed to be that dark, because I have the Blu-ray, and I've watched it a lot, so I know that, like, um, I'm trying to think of good examples, but the most the most sort of glaringly problematic thing that I found was when they were throwing the seti eels into uh, Chekhov and Terrell's ear, or in the helmets, then they go crawling into the ear. You could barely make out what was going on. It was so dark. And I was like, yeah, there's no way this scene was ever as dark as I remember it. And it's not just me false, like Mandela effect remembering. It's just, I, I think they haven't got the settings right. I don't, I don't know anything about like being a projectionist, but it felt like they either had a bad print of the movie or they just didn't have their settings right if it was a digital thing or, or what. But yeah, which I was a little it, bit annoying. I but, think it yeah. must be because when I, when I saw the theatrical cut, it was basically the same tone as the one that you see on the Blu-ray, the current Blu-ray. Mm. Wasn't a huge deal. It didn't detract massively from my enjoyment because... Thankfully, the film isn't one of those like Batman situations where it's all darkly lit throughout anyway. So the only times it really kind of was overly frustrating was in the cargo crates at the start, as I said, where Khan sort of first meets Chekhov and Terrell. 
uh, and then a couple of moments just when they're in dark corridors and bits and pieces, but not enough to really affect my enjoyment that much. But it did kind of, as a film sort of geek, and given the fact that I had, I had kind of basically paid, I mean, I'm a member, so I pay anyway, but I had effectively paid to see it. It kind of frustrated me a little bit, but like I said, and I will say, despite saying that, for whatever reason, whichever settings they did seem to enhance the space scenes. So any scene that had like the spaceships or outer space looked amazing. And then it was just when you got like to like indoors into dark rooms and stuff that it was like, what, what am I looking at? <laughs> so, yeah. But, Would you say that it's, uh, I mean, I, I know that you love the film anyway. I mean, we pretty much all yeah, that's, do. But spoiler say, alert, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Would you say it's pretty, it's, enhanced it actually seeing it in the theaters i'm glad i did it and i'm very happy because initially um when i booked the tickets i noticed that it was going to be in one of the smaller screens and then when i got there found that we'd been upgraded to literally the biggest non-imax screen that they've got uh, which is oh, like wow. screen nine in the main bulk of it and i was like oh, i'll take that for sure definitely that's great <laughs> and i will say i thought i was a big nerd but then um these two so there were a couple that were sitting there. One of their friends came in to the screening and they sort of called him over and asked him, oh, I thought you were seeing this on a different day or whatever. And he was like, yeah, I've seen it twice already and I'm going to Middlesbrough to see it tomorrow. And I was like, okay, what? How many? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll see it like 10 times before it's because uh, how often does it come on in the big screen? And I'm like, all right, that's a little bit excessive even for yeah. me. Man. Oh, dear God. I mean, if, if, if you are that person and you happen to be listening, I'm not throwing shade. Like, kudos to you for your absolute dedication to the cause. But I don't know if I would travel that far and go to that trouble and certainly pay that to go and see this countless times. But uh, I mean, yeah. And if you do, I'm, next time, take us with you. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, that was that was neither here nor there. That was just more of a personal story about like before the movie had started and everything. But um, yeah, like I said, it wasn't it wasn't devastating because I mean it's the wrath of Khan, so the big things that I was looking out for were the space battles primarily, and they looked incredible. And I, I tell you to answer your previous question, I'm very glad to have seen them on the big screen. Um, not that they ever look bad, but something about seeing those models and that sort of movement and and those fights, the phaser blasts and everything on the big screen was like yep i'm just pleased to say that i've done this now so yeah because it was incredible um, i mean all, all these years later even now when you look back and ilm did an absolutely fantastic oh, job amazing, amazing job and uh, again this isn't really apropos of nothing i should say because uh, it's not really related to the film but i bought a um book a while well a few weeks ago uh, about the genesis trilogy which is just a random uh, I didn't know what it was at the time, but it's just a collection of like articles from Star Trek magazine about the films. Uh, and I was reading it on the bus to and from last night because I was like, well, why not? I'm going to see Wrath of God. It makes sense. And yeah, the people that are interviewed there are like Ken Ralston, who did the effects and stuff. And there's quite a good bit. If you don't, if you haven't sort of collected Star Trek magazine and you haven't read these interviews or you just have an interest, I definitely recommend it. I think it was like eight or nine quid off Amazon, this book. And it's worth it because it's it's got some awesome behind the scenes stuff about the making of Star Trek's two, three, and four. And it's worth it anyway, because I'm a nerd for these things, but there's a couple of pages for each movie just of um, the posters, the various posters that are released. I say a couple of pages, there's way more because they're full-sized things. So there's like six to eight pages on each movie of like, this is the one sheet, this is the theatrical release, this is the, you know, Mondo poster or whatever. And I was like, ah, oh, awesome, cool. Um, you have to send yeah. me the URL for this. I will do, I will do, yeah. It's, it's nice because it's, it's hardback as well, so... 
it doesn't just feel like you know oh it's a magazine special or whatever um yeah but yeah to, to make it relevant to what you were saying hearing from ken ralston like that he was given more or less free reign within limits as he puts it you know it was clear what the director wanted but he was able to do things like design the ships and the station and the uh, the idea of using the various things to make the nebula and stuff and they were all quite pioneering for the time so i was like this is it this is the kind of thing that fascinates me to read about some people would probably say like why ruin the magic but i'm like no i want to know about this stuff and uh i can't remember where i was reading this some book that i read but i definitely recall seeing somewhere that the reliant which is by the way fantastic um is only the way that it is by complete accident because somebody looked at it upside down and thought it looked better <laughs> like, yeah. um, I think, uh, I can't remember if it was Ken, specifically Ken Rostin or somebody else that designed the ship, but it wasn't supposed to have underslung nacelles. It was just that they took the Enterprise, the Constitution class model, and like took off the drive section so that it was like the saucer and then the nacelles like above it uh, flaring upwards. But the director or whoever had final say came in, saw these blueprints upside down and was like, I like that. I like what you did there. Good idea. And so they were just like, yeah, fine, we'll do that. <laughs> Why not? So it's one of those things where you're like such brilliant like ideas from complete accidents, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, and it's such an yeah. iconic design. It is as well. And uh, yeah, because it's it's the first non-Enterprise or non-Constitution class ship we'd ever seen in the Trek franchise up to that point, because the original yeah. series not renowned for its great effects. So every time there was a Starfleet ship, it was just the Enterprise model with different stickers to give it a different registry. So yeah. Yeah, I've always been in awe of the Reliant, as any sensible person I think would be. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it looks amazing on the big screen, as you would expect. So, yeah. oh, fantastic! Um, and you say the print wasn't that great. Uh, how about the audio? I love the soundtrack. Oh, I think Horn did the best soundtrack for the movie in movies in this in two and three. Uh, yeah. How does it? How did it sound in the theatre? The audio was exceptional. Um, it was really, really good because again being a nerd for this film and having seen it enough times i'm like you i know every note of the james horner score because i think it's amazing so i was specifically not listening out for it but it was like you know when you hear it it's it tinges that thing in your brain of recognition of like yep there it is old friend <laughs> so um which you know a lot of the film was like that other than the the added scenes for the director's cut which i've only seen a couple of times so there was that's how i could usually tell when they were kind of coming in, because I was like, ah, this, is, this isn't this is as familiar, so I know this is <laughs> not from the theatrical version. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, the, the score and the audio was fantastic. Mind you, having said that, it wasn't as good as the audio for either the motion picture, uh, which I saw, but then again, I think that's had a new restoration, which I saw not yeah. long ago, and um, E.T., which I saw later this same day, which, you know, spoiler alert, that was the other film I saw, which the audio was incredible but again that's john williams score so you're already working with perfection really aren't you sir? so yeah um just to to, to to go a little bit into the wrath of khan in case you're not a star trek fan it's probably the one that's the most famous uh, of the star trek films because it's often cited as the best or just as a great science fiction film anyway um i know that it was number 80 something in the 100 greatest films of all time the last time there was a list by empire or somebody <laughs> along those lines that did it so it's a great movie, and I often go back and forth, again, spoiler alert for my opinion at the end, but I often go back and forth between this and First Contact as to which is my favourite of all the Star Trek films. And watching this, I, I was kind of looking out for that because we watched First Contact recently 
albeit on home release, obviously, um, to review it not long ago on the podcast. And so I was like, I'm going to compare this time and see which one is better. And I think I've come to the conclusion that Wrath of Khan might have finally edged First Contact just because the stuff that First Contact gave us legacy-wise is a very mixed bag. Some of the stuff, it, I think it, it's kind of hampered by the whole idea and they took some of the wrong things from that. Whereas, as I've kind of touched on with the Reliant and stuff, everything that Wrath of Khan brought to the franchise really enhanced it and really made it better. Um, and again, viewing it with that eye when you're like, wow, these uniforms are amazing. These new ships and are amazing. I would I would say a new station, but it's not. We know it's just the other one turned upside down. But still, <laughs> clever idea, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, like the set design, the scripting, the everything that, yeah, the, the idea of, you know, just because it's sci-fi doesn't mean you can't do a play on uh, Melville or whatever else and have it be, a you know, an action-packed tale. And the idea that I think it was half Bennett put forward of like, well, we are a military, so play it like a submarine in space kind of thing. So you had, yeah, I love that about that last battle. It does kind of feel like you're watching two sort of World War II submarines going at it, yeah. um, which gives it a bit more, I think, gravitas than it would perhaps would otherwise. So all of those things are things that I appreciate, even though I know, at least when it comes to sort of Starfleet being more military, that Gene Roddenberry uh, was not a fan, not fond of that. But I think it works, especially for those, for these sort of six movies, the first uh, original series ones just before uh, we go any further then I, I was going to go into the differences between the director's cuts so if you d haven't seen it and you don't want to know in advance slight spoilers for the next sort of five or ten minutes or whatever um so yeah dk you, have you seen the uh, director's cut specifically i have yeah they are I, i'm guessing it's the same thing where the the scenes that have been reinstated are primarily the ones uh featuring the character in your avatar well, partly. Uh, that's I was going to say the, the director's cut. I think I sometimes uh, jokingly refer to as the Peter Preston cut because he. Uh, <laughs> that's the most noticeable thing, though. It was surprising. Like I said, this was about the fourth time I think I've seen this version, so I noticed other things this time that I can get into. And then I looked up a couple of other things. There's some other bits and pieces as well. Like there's certain things where they use alternate takes. Uh, yeah. Where. I wouldn't notice the difference per se, but you can certainly go and look it up if you're a huge cinephile and into that kind of thing. I'm not going to go into that because if, if I started mentioning every time that was an alternate take, that was an alternate, you'd, you'd be here forever. Um, but yeah, it doesn't change the content or anything as such. It's just sometimes the director obviously preferred the take he didn't use first time around. And uh, I think if you are interested, just for quick uh, sort of comparisons, the most glaring example that I found is uh, during the conversation on the regular one station when they've been told that the Reliant is coming and then basically Marcus and all the scientists have a conflab about it. Uh, yeah. That, that take is noticeably different in the director's cut because it's way more sort of zoomed out and focused. In the, in the speech yeah. about, but what about yeah. Reliant? She's on her way. You, you can tell straight away. Yeah. It's very different, but um, uh, I will say as well that the, this isn't the, this is the director's cut that released on Blu-ray, not the one that was released on DVD because it still has the line missing where Kirk reveals to Spock that David is his son, um, which I don't mind because it's quite clear when you watch that scene that it's a an overdub, if that makes sense, because yeah. they're just like... The scene is still present where, obviously, in, in all versions, they go to use the turbo lift and they're told they're not working below whatever, C-deck or whatever. C -deck. Um, and then they go, and instead, on the director's cut, you see them actually start climbing up the Jeffrey's tubes. And then in the... DVD director's cut, there's just a quick 
very glaring line that I always hated of just Kirk going, that boy is my son. And then Spock going, hmm, quite fascinating. And I'm like, that's, it, it comes from absolutely yeah. nowhere. You're not talking about any of this in the meantime. It's obvious your lips aren't moving, even though you can't really see it. It's just been dubbed over. And I'm like, I just hate that. We don't need it. So yes, that is still gone. If you like me, don't like that. <laughs> Sorry to be too yeah. uh, overly geeky. But um, yes, as I said, the, the primary things are the Peter Preston scenes, which I'm sure I don't need to educate you about, DK. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I, th no, I, I no. think it's a, sh it's a shame they were cut out of the theatrical cut. I mean, when you look at them, they're not that long a scene. And I think it adds more gravita gravitas when, uh, when he's on his way out, so to speak. And mm. I love the little scene in engineering where he kind of backtalks Kirk a little. Mm-hmm. Yep. Completely agree. Uh, in case anybody uh, like isn't familiar, as I said, spoilers. Uh, it's revealed in the director's cut, which isn't in the theatrical cut, that this uh, sort of unfortunate midshipman, Peter Preston, is um, Scotty's nephew, uh, or as he puts it, his sister's youngest. Um, so it brings a lot more gravitas when he dies, basically, because as you, even in the theatrical version, you see that he gets killed, and you do get the really sort of fantastic line from um, Scotty of like, "Oh, he stayed at his post while the other trainees ran." But when you know that family relationship, I think it makes it all the better, and it also gives you a way more emotional scene after he's died in sickbay between initially Kirk McCoy and Scotty, um, and then Kirk and McCoy, uh, which just wasn't present at all in the theatrical version and yeah. like you it's like well why it was it's not a long scene it's maybe like a minute and a half but it just adds that little bit more and even i i really like this, the line in that scene when scotty literally just asks why because you would in that situation yeah um and and kirk says he wants to seek vengeance on me for exiling him 15 years ago and he doesn't care who stands in his way. And I was just yeah. like, wow, that's a good line reading by Shatner in that anyway. And it also, it for me, just gives extra clarity to like the whole crew know what's going on. And like, oh, crap, Khan's out for revenge, not on us, but on Kirk. But he is so bent on it that he doesn't care who else he hurts. You know what I mean? So, yeah, um, and I love I loved the, the little exchange between uh, McCoy and Kirk, where McCoy says, yeah. you know, you got us out of that one. And Kirk says, you know, the only reason we're still alive is because I knew something about these ships that he didn't. Yep. 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 <laughs> yeah. So and you I know the scenes very well. I, I appreciate that. I did, I did it for Trek of mine, mate. Uh, oh, so, okay. yeah, I, I I don't think it slows the pacing down at all. So no. it's a, a weird, a weird decision as to why they were cut in the first place to me. Yeah, I like a lot of the, I mean, the, those are the key scenes that I think that the reason that I bought the director's cut was for the Peter Preston stuff, because it's, I think that's the the most obvious. But I even like the completely new, and again, it's it's seconds, but the new little enhanced extra bits um, during when McCoy gives Kirk the glasses uh, for his birthday gift. Yeah. And you actually get McCoy giving a little bit more about its its antiques for your collection. They're four hundred years old. You don't often find the lenses intact. I mean, it's it's got nothing to do with anything, but it's like, why did you cut it? Because it's it's seconds, mere seconds, and it just gives you a little yeah. bit of yeah. Why why not have it? You know, <laughs> it humanizes the characters. It gives them a little bit of background. And yes, I mean that. I don't know how you feel. To me, they're more like a family than any other crew. Mm -hmm in any iteration of the franchise. And I think what appeals to a lot of the people like me is when they have that little bit of banter. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and that was the other thing I was going to say. The other scene that I loved that they added, um, which is notable, is after Kirk has explained Genesis, there's way more of a kind of argument, I suppose, between McCoy and Spock yeah. um, about it, which it cuts straight to in the theatrical version, Spock going, control your emotions. Whereas in this version, you actually get um, McCoy saying, oh, it's ridiculous. Earth was created in six days. Now here comes Genesis to do it in six seconds. And then it cuts to the directorial stuff, which is Spock saying, yes, I agree, in the wrong hands. And McCoy quite rightly saying, wrong hands? Would you mind telling me who's the right hands, my logical friend? You're not in favor of these experiments, are you? And then it cuts back to Spock going, well, really, Doctor, control your passions. And I'm like, again, why did you lose that? Yeah, because it's... it makes so much more sense. Yeah, and it just adds so much more to to Genesis, which again, there's a little tiny bit at the end of um, just after Preston's died in sickbay when um, McCoy says, I'm still baffled by all this. How did Khan know about Genesis? And Kirk says, it doesn't matter. All that matters now is that he doesn't get his hands on it because as you said, it's a bang that could rearrange the universe. Yeah. <laughs> and it's again, it's just extra emphasis on like, yeah, this is this is yeah. We're in trouble here. This guy's basically trying to steal the nuclear bomb. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, but um, I, I like that. But I love like to, to go back to sort of the wrath of Khan in general. Uh, that was what I wanted to say. It was as well as sort of introducing a lot of good stuff. It's just a great, great movie. As I watched it, I was kind of like I said, mentally knowing like what's good about this, and it, it was. Because you appreciate it anyway. Like as I was young, I appreciated it. I think because unlike the motion picture, it was it's way more action packed and it's way it, it's far more sort of reverent. I think of the original series, that tone of sort of adventure, and obviously it's literally a sequel to an episode, so it has to sort of be more respectful in that way and and bring more of that tone in. Um, and like I said, just the idea of you know, <laughs> fair enough, they ripped off things like Moby Dick and stuff, but it works. So why not? Yeah. As you mentioned, it's a lot more uh, literary earlier. It does quote yeah. Melville quite a lot. It yes. does hammer hammer the reference home somewhat. You know, it's got uh, with the uh, Taylor Two Cities and you know the Moby mm. Dick, and you see it on the Botany Bay, and he and they continue yeah. quoting it. And but oh, yeah, yeah. It, it it does it does have that lyrical quality about this film, which I think is something that the motion picture lacked. It was very cold and emotionless compared to this one, and I think that's why this one was much more of a success. It hit that tone with the audience. Definitely. Um, and I was just going to say, like, I think, as, as I mentioned in our previous review, I appreciate the motion picture a lot more because you realise it's more of a sort of, it, it's a philosophy textbook or it's Arthur C. Clarke, but it ultimately all boils down to it's a search for God and for the meaning of life. And there's not much more to it, which, I mean, fair enough. You, it's a silly thing to say, because what more is there? But at the same time, as I was watching Wrath of Khan, I was like, do you know what? If it was just like a redo of Moby Dick or whatever, this wouldn't be as powerful. But there's so many themes that they write in that resonate through this, like um, the idea of Kirk aging and feeling like he's getting too old to do this. And then, you know, the idea of him cheating death and never doing the Kobayashi Maru. And then eventually... It's when he faces death that he feels more revitalized. And, and I was like, oh, see, that's really deep stuff that just adds so much more to, like, so many more layers to this film than just, oh, it's an angry dude trying to kill Kirk. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate it a, a lot more. Like I said, it's it's deeper than people, I think, realize on first viewing a lot of the time as well, which isn't to say it isn't also a great knockabout, adventurous romp and, and fun um, Definitely, but, and I think I think that's partially down to uh, Nicholas Meyer. I mean, I know he's uncredited for for the script, but he, you know, storyboard, yes. But uh, I think he put a lot of that 
a lot of effort into that, which if he'd not been involved, I'm not sure would have, if it was just down to have Bennett and uh, Sowards, mm. I don't think it would, uh, it would have worked as no, well. I, I agree. Um, and again, if you get a chance to look up that book or any other chance to see interviews with Nicholas Meyer, um, him talking about this and Star Trek six and kind of the reasons behind it and the writing of it and such is fascinating to do. So I do recommend it. But uh, like I said, themes, Deep themes like facing death for the first time or facing your own mortality. And uh, of course, spoilers, but of course, the end of the film still hits me like an absolute freight train. And yeah. yes, I did genuinely weep in, in the cinema in front of people at the end of this film, which I have seen like a hundred times because yeah. it gets me every time. It's incredible. Same, it's, same yeah. here. We, I, I can sit there, can watch it on TV, and you've got Trek 3 lined up immediately to come afterwards. You know that this is not a permadeath, but you just cannot help but be moved. It's the performances for me. I mean, for all that we criticise Shatner for the kind of person that he is in his personal life and for some of the, you know, overacting that is very present, when he wants to, the man can act, <laughs> you know, and it's he's incredible in those end scenes. And Nimoy, it goes without saying, is always incredible and somehow yeah. found an extra level to which you're that, just like, where, what? <laughs> where did this come from, you know? <laughs> the bit where uh, Nimoy asks, what do you think of my solution? And his voice raises mm -hmm. at the end. That just breaks my heart. It's the it's the littlest of things, but what always gets me, and it's I, I, can, I can sort of stay stoic and British and bite my lip throughout all of the whole sort of, um, oh, don't go in there, you'll flood the compartment. And I almost go during, he's dead already. But what gets me, and it's the stupidest, littlest thing, is Spock walking into the wall because he's been blinded yeah. and he doesn't know where the thing is. And I'm just like, oh, every time. I don't even know why. It's just, it's because it reinforces, I think, the frailty and like, oh, yeah, this guy's dead. He's gone. You know? yeah. So, uh, yeah. But even then, he, you know, he straightens his tunic because yep. uh, he wants to look officious. Yep. Yeah, it's little moments like that that just, I think, make the end of this film something special. And something which... Every time I watch this, I, I think to remember to look out for, and I still never have. And I've read about it a million times that people comment about, like, why is it that Savik sheds a tear at Spock's funeral when she's a Vulcan? And there's been all kinds of discussions and stuff, and I'm like, I always miss that. <laughs> Every time I miss that. So I presume you must have picked that up uh, when you've been watching. What, the half-Romulan thing? Oh, no, I mean, like, Savik actually... Oh, like, oh, oh no, I, I, I noticed a tear. Every time. Yeah. yeah. See, I never notice it. Maybe because I'm usually like, like there myself and there's too much else. <laughs> you can't see the screen, on. mate. All your vision's blurred. <laughs> you you mock, but that's probably true. But no, I do remember. Yeah, I do know initially the plan was for Savic to be half Romulan. And in the end, that didn't happen. But there is still, if you sort of view the film like that, there, there are reasons why, therefore, she might seem a little bit more emotional at times because she does come off a, a yeah. little bit angry towards Kirk in the turbo lift at first as well, which for me always struck me as a little bit, oh, that's not, but I always, I think knowing, you know, canon and whatever, and the fact that she isn't half Romulan later, they decide, I can kind of forgive it as well. She's young and inexperienced and, and you know, we've seen, I, I mean, to Paul has moments like that in Enterprise, not to get too geeky, so I, I don't mind yeah. it, but a lot of people really take it. I would have liked if they'd not the, cut that, that little snippet about mm. uh, Spock revealing that she's half Romulan, because I think it's, Again, I don't think it would have slowed the pacing down. I don't know if I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I would like that 
that's where I, I think I slightly disagree with you because I don't think there's any real need for it and I prefer it. I think it has more impact. Like a lot of people complain, like she shouldn't cry, she's a Vulcan. And I think it's it's either Nicholas Meyer or, or one of the writers has commented, no, that's precisely why she should because it shows you the strength and the impact of what's happening is that it's actually broken through this. And I don't think you'd get that if she was just revealed to be half Romulan. It's like it's like they, they did that as a way to sort of placate nerds, if you know what I mean. So it's like, she did it because she's half Romulan, shut up. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Whereas I'd rather be yeah. like, no, she did it because emotion, Vulcans aren't emotionless, they repress emotions, and she was so overwhelmed she couldn't repress. I'd prefer see, that to just like, the, there's a reason. <laughs> I think it's. I think this is one of the cases where I'd read the novel first, ah. and it goes into that in the novel. So when it's not touched, obviously when it's not touched upon, uh, you know, you feel that you're missing out a little bit. In the novel, yeah. there was a lot more scenes set on regular one, and you got to know the names of the uh, the crew and their hobbies and all that kind of thing before you know Khan came aboard and killed them all. Yeah, which again, shocking, quite how brutal sort of not that you see anything, but just the aftermath and then the reveal of um, uh, you know, I know they're kind of hypnotized or whatever at that time, but this at the time you don't know that, and what seems like the shell shock of um. Paul Winfield again, great actor, um, RIP, but delivering the performance of like he, he killed those people, he came down here and he slit their throats. And, and you're like, oh, you don't even need to see anything to feel the brutality of like he got so angry, he just killed them all and then clearly strung them up because that's how they're found. And you're just like, oh, yikes, again, it just adds to the menace of Khan. And just like, um, because a lot of the time, I think in this movie, you, you kind of think, you know, he's kind of reasonable. Like, nobody did check up on him, and his wife did die, and he kind of has fair grievance. And then you get scenes like that, and you're like, oh, yeah, this dude went way too far. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, you, so I think you need that. But that's, I mean, that's always present, but it's just a good thing to mention. The other thing I wanted to mention is, again, the very end of the movie, um, again, an actor that sadly we've lost, but Merritt Buttrick in that last scene, uh, talking to Kirk, as Kirk's just completely defeated, and he's like... Um, Again, I can remain quite tight-lipped during everything. I always get upset during the funeral scene and whatever. But where I really go is, is that all you wanted? Mainly that and just to say that I'm proud, very proud to be your son. Every time I'm in that, yeah. I'm like, no! It does bring it. a lot to my thought there, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And then, oh, man, knowing what's coming, I think, in Star Trek 3 makes it 10 times worse, of course. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's so well delivered and the hug that they give and everything at that last scene. And, yeah, the end of this movie is just sublime. It's perfection. I mean, the script throughout is a perfect example of how to script everything to reinforce the themes you're going for while still keeping your movie rolling along. And yet, like I said, that last kind of everything from noticing that Spock's chair is empty to, you know, the narration at the end is just sublime, just flawless yeah. cinema for me. So, yeah. It's one of those um, scenes where, it's one of those situations, sorry, where you, uh, the, I mean, the movie's a good two hours long, but it just goes by in a flash. You, oh, you just, yeah. You just think that that cannot have been two hours easily. Yeah. It's when it, it just it just breezes by. It makes it look so effortless. Yeah, absolutely. The other note that I kind of wanted to make about performances, and again, sorry because I'm repeating going back to a previous scene, but um, again, it's I'm pleased that it's there in the director's cut because it's when uh, Preston has died, and you know at this point what he means to Scotty. And again, it's it's a little moment, but it's the way that Scotty delivers the line to McCoy. Thank you, Doctor. I know you tried. Which is again something you just don't get in the theatrical cut, which 
Like, that's a shame because that's a great little performance of that line read by Jimmy Doohan as well. Um, yeah. And even before that, when Kirk's like, I, I'm really sorry, Scotty, but I have to ask, can we get main power? And he's like, I didn't think so, but you'll have my best. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Just such great stuff. I could quote this all day and I could rave about it all day, but it's a mini review, so we're not here to analyze <laughs> every last bit of every last seed, unfortunately. So uh, did you have any last questions before I get into sort of uh, the specifics of what I actually... Not that anybody's under any delusions right now, but the actual... Yeah, so at this point, they're saying, but does he like it? Uh, <laughs> well, I've asked pretty much everything that I wanted to ask about the battle of print, about the audio. Uh, you, hmm. You've divulged about the scenes. So no, no, no more questions. I mean, I'm still, I'm still in awe. I, I'm in awe of this movie when I watch it at home. So I can only it's imagine incredible. how you felt. Oh, it's incredible. Like I said, it, I, for whatever reason, when it started, because perhaps because I was disappointed at the sort of not being a great print, and perhaps it's because I was comparing it to a 4K print of the motion picture, um, which you know, not to praise that again because it's well-worn territory, but. The difference is noticeable, especially when you watch this. And I think I was expecting it to be the same, and it's not. Um, so if you do get a chance to see the motion picture uh, or buy it or whatever, then do. But yeah, uh, for whatever reason, it took me like an extra 20 minutes, I think, to fully get immersed in the film the way that I normally do, uh, which is a shame because it starts out with that great Kobayashi Maru sequence that I alluded to uh, at the start of the review. Um, but yeah, after after once it did click, I was fine. And then, like I said, that last 20 minutes or whatever it is uh, at the very end, just incredible i was just like this movie is so freaking good <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but uh yeah like i said i appreciated everything because it was writ large on the big screen and because i was familiar i was appreciating every nuance of the performance every bit of that audio score that we already know um but yeah enough lavishing with absolute praise do you have any <laughs> nitpicks or, <laughs> do you have any nitpicks or problems with the movie? I think I have one, and it's such a really ridiculous nitpick that I apologize in advance, but I have to mention it. Um, but yeah, well, do you have any before we go? <laughs> the only one that gets to me, uh, it didn't come up in the novel. Uh, my head canon kind of sorts it out, but yeah, my nephew's just been mortally wounded. I'll go up to the bridge. That was literally my exact issue. <laughs> Yep, that was my exact issue. It's like, I get the power of the scene is that the turbo lift doors open and everybody gasps and I, <gasps> but I'm like, why didn't he go to sickbay? Yeah. <laughs> That's my the... only headcanon is the turbo lift near where he went was that damaged. To, he couldn't get to sickbay only via the second turbo lift on the ah, bridge. Okay. Fair That's, That's the only way I can get around it. Yeah. It's just so weird. I if you want to debate like me, <laughs> Always go yeah. for the Misty Science Theatre explanation. You should really just relax. <laughs> Repeat to yourself, it's just a show. I should really just relax. So, yeah. Um, right, well, well, we may as well finish with our just sort of quick thoughts. I never really sort of logged this or put it as uh, as we would in a full review. And, you know, God willing, someday we might do a full review of this movie, which would just devolve into us, essentially. <laughs> People just go, oh, for God. Stop the low fest. But uh, so what are your sort of last thoughts and what score would you give Wrath of Khan out of uh, five stars? I mean, I, I've not seen the theatrical cut at the cinema. But mm. this is the pinnacle. The director's cut, you mean, at the cinema, just to clarify. The director's cut, yeah, sorry. Yeah. This is the pinnacle of Star Trek movies for me. I know you said you had you had problems between this and First Contact, but it's for me, it's not even a, it's not even close. This all mm. the way. So it's always going to be five stars for me. 
Awesome, awesome. Yeah, um, again, I appreciate other things around it as well more from watching this because I should have mentioned as well that every time I watch this movie, I'm always baffled at the negative reception or what used to be a lot more negative to Star Trek Three, because this really genuinely is just the first half to me of a story that concludes perfectly with, like, I love Star Trek Three, And I used to be ashamed to say that because everybody was like, oh, that's one of the bad ones. It's the uh, odd numbered ones. And I'm like, it's not bad at all I love, I love it but yeah so i highly i mean the way this one ends if you're a first-time viewer i think you're going to want to immediately watch star trek 3 anyway but i think they complement each other really well even though people yeah. will be like blasphemy star trek 2 is orders of magnitude better than 3 but anyway I, I, <laughs> so. I, I think the reason that trek 3 is looked down upon is because it just comes between two such strong installments mm. that you can't yeah. help but think oh, okay yeah uh, middle the middle part of a trilogy always has a problem you've got to keep up that momentum without the audience getting boring but i do think trek 3 does that admirably i don't see what everybody's problem with it is to be honest if if you're gonna tell me that the middle part of a trilogy always struggles i've got four words for you my friend the empire strikes back <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough that's fair enough but you know i'm looking at i'm looking at it from a uh a pertwee six-parter viewpoint well, I mean, <laughs> that's a different <laughs> argument for a different time. But no, I think uh, that that's a different review as well, Star Trek Three. But yeah, as far as Wrath of Khan goes, it's already, I think, like I would have probably already give the theatrical cut five stars. And the director's cut improves on it. So it's like, well, clearly I've got to go five stars out of five. It's so good. It's like the sort of perfect... <laughs> Venn diagram of all the good things that Trek can do and, and would eventually go on to develop and everything. And like I said, even outside of Star Trek, I think I appreciate it now just as a film and the way that it reinforces what it's trying to say, the performances, the music, the effects. And I can't be objective, so I fully admit that. Again, if you want to try and argue like, oh, I have issue with this, this and this, fair enough, you may well do, but I'm not going to uh, say it affects me in any way. And yeah, for me, absolute five-star movie yeah. um so i yeah. think from now on this this should be called the uh wrath of khan wins everything podcast <laughs> mind you i still i mean i'm still i still have first contact i think on the same level because just because it's so personal to me because when it came out i was 14 and it was the first thing the first thing that came out new that really hit me and that i ended up like i memorized every line of dialogue and i watched it multiple times not saying that I didn't with Wrath of Khan, but it was like, in a weird way, that existed. It was already there. Like, it came out the year I was born. So that yeah. was always there. Whereas, like, th there was something about the fact that First Contact was... I'd seen Best of Both Worlds and stuff, and then this was new content, which was that good, sort of fired at me. And I was like, oh, wow. Which, you know, maybe if, if I'd had the personal connection to Wrath of Khan, it would, it would, I would get like, well, it's so much better, but... For me, the two of them are on the level, but I, I just put Wrath of Khan above it for Trek Legacy. Yeah, this uh, the, I mean, I'm pretty much in the same position with Wrath of Khan as you are at First Contact. And mm. to me, when I, when I first was getting into Trek, this was new content. Yeah. So it's it's kind of stuck with me. This and the motion picture. And, and yeah, I, I just yeah. can't get any better. And I know, you know, obviously motion picture is a different kettle of fish, but uh, yeah. this... Even this just beats it. Yeah. I will say, like, as, as I tried to put myself into the shoes of people seeing it for the first time, I'm like, I I wish I could grasp, and yet don't want to, could grasp the importance of things like seeing the Reliant for the first time and being like, it's a 
Federation starship that doesn't just look like the Enterprise. What's yeah. going on? You know, um, just little things like that. And then, like I said, the the idea of what what it must have been like to people that grew up with the original series, thinking nothing was going to come of it, had seen Space Seed and then same actor appearing, you know, Ricardo yeah. Montalban and, and like, oh, wow, this is something we know. It's a sequel to that. But anyway, uh, we'd be here all day, as I said, with uh, with lavishing too much praise on it. So suffice to say, we both love Wrath of Khan. This is the Star Trek Wrath of Khan Wayne's All podcast, as you said, <laughs> DK. So um, do like, uh, subscribe and follow us if you want more uh, Trek content. There's lots of it coming your way. Uh, we have a epic interview coming very soon that uh, I will reveal soon. Uh, there's the time travel themed third series still to come. Uh, and you will by now have hopefully had a chance to watch Trekker Mind, uh, which aired just the week prior to this coming out. But hopefully uh, you've had a chance to watch. If not, it should all be there. And uh, yeah, DK, anything else you wanted to add before we go? No, just, you know, get them to watch the episodes, hear me fail miserably on Trek of Mind, uh, tell your friends, because the more the merrier for this podcast, and if you've got any suggestions or anything you agree, disagree, just drop us a line, let us know. Definitely, and uh, yeah, do do sort of as well interact with us with your opinions on the various episodes and films and things that we're reviewing, because we'd love to hear from you, we're not getting a lot of response, and we know that there are uh, people with strong opinions one way or the other, and that's what we're here for. We're here to, uh, we, we don't judge, we listen, we understand, and we uh, we, we value everyone's opinion here. Um, and so, yeah, that fittingly, I think, will lead me into my traditional send-off of, we are Starfleet, live long and prosper. <laughs> you have been listening to the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast, hosted by Michael Wilson and DK. Created, produced, and edited by Michael Wilson. Additional material produced by DK. Music by Timeless Journey. More information can be found at soundcloud.com forward slash timeless journey. The Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast is based on an idea by Michael Wilson and Will Templar. Follow the podcast on Twitter at HomeTrek, on Instagram at HomeStarTrekPodcast, or look for the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast under Facebook groups. Links to all our social media accounts and more are in this episode's description. This podcast is available on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Silver Screen Hit or Miss Star Trek. This has been a Mike's Podcast production, copyright 2022. Thank you for listening.